Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today on the podcast, Michelle and I are going to talk about sexual assault. So trigger warning for listeners, um, you may want to tune in or tune out because we will be discussing things like assault today. So the reason that Monique and I wanted to do this episode on sexual assault is because unfortunately rates of sexual assault tend to be a lot higher amongst neurodivergent women compared to neurotypical women. So I think the first thing to chat about on this topic is actually just defining what sexual assault is. I think a lot of people can feel that sexual assault is that kind of man jumping out of the bushes and uh, forcibly having sex with you. That's actually very rare. It's much more common that sexual assault is more of a emotionally coercive, manipulative act. Um, And it's often something that technically you might have quote unquote, agreed to, but there's no consent, right? So today we're going to talk about uh, what actually consent is as well and just kind of unpack that a little bit in a sexual space. But being aware of the different forms that sexual assault can take is also really key. So the different forms of sexual assault can be someone touching your body that you did not consent to, um, through to someone exposing their body to yours that you did not consent to, uh, through to somebody uh, engaging in a sexual act with you that you did not consent to. And it's important to say too there that it actually doesn't matter who the person doing that is. There might be someone that you know very well or someone that you don't know at all. The key uh, definer, I guess, of what makes something sexual assault is that element of consent. And as I said, we'll unpack that a little bit further today. So when we think about all the different things that uh, constitute sexual assault, one of the integral researchers involved in, you know, deepening our understanding of what sexual assault actually is um, and what can- constitutes non-consensual sexual acts is Mary Koss. So uh, listeners might have heard of her as the person who coined the term date rape. So she was a researcher in the 80s. She still actually is a researcher, I believe. Um, and her kind of origin story is actually very fantastic. So she tells the story of being a brand new postdoc at a first posting at a university. She's walking into her building Coming out, uh, exiting the building at the same time she's going in is a senior male professor who immediately says to her, oh, I just had a grant proposal rejected because I'm a man. I need your signature on it because you're a woman so that it'll be approved. And she's like, well, I might need to read it first before I sign it. 
So she reads the proposal and what the study actually involved was a female research assistant posing as, you know, a normal um, student campus member standing outside the building. They'd then have male participants entering the building ready to kind of partake in the study. This sort of disguised female uh, research assistant would then strike up some sort of interaction with the male participant. In one condition, the female research assistant was just kind of dressed normally. And then in the other condition, they proposed that she wear this massively padded bra so that her boobs are really ginormous. And then the male participant goes into the building and starts, you know, his engagement in the study. And one of the questions they ask him is, how rapeable did you find that woman that you just had an interaction with? So Mary Koss was like, probably not going to sign on to this study. Um, but through a series of events, that kind of parlayed her into what uh, she eventually became famous for, which is her research on sexual assault on campus. And one of the things she found in collecting lots of data uh, amongst female college students was that these students would agree, you know, a list of questions saying, has this happened to you? Have you had this experience? Have you had this experience? And oftentimes they would say, yes, 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 yes. And then the last question would be, have you ever experienced sexual assault? And most people would say, no, even though they just gone through a whole list of questions where they'd endorsed all this criteria of sexual assault. So what that led Mary Koss to believe, and this was kind of her central thesis, is that the concept of what rape is and sexual assault is, um, definitely back then, but still now, I think, uh, is that it's kind of the boogeyman fantasy, right? You know, this scary unknown man comes out and attacks you. But the reality of the situation is that it's rarely that. And oftentimes things that are actually assault are so normalized and accepted that even if it's happened to you, a lot of people don't uh, think of that as being a sexual assault or a sexually coercive act. Yeah, so with sexual assault, um, force doesn't necessarily mean physical coercion. Um, oftentimes there's an element of emotional or psychological coercion and manipulation and a power difference between the person who is the perpetrator and the person who's being assaulted. And the studies actually reflect this. So one study that we had a look at that just got published in April of this year on autistic women and sexual assault actually showed that the two main strategies that uh, people use to abuse uh, autistic women were manipulation manipulation, uh, harassment, and that power differential. So um, being in a position of power above you. And the other was using surprise uh, to take advantage of the person um, while their defenses were down, I guess, um, or the person was too shocked to react. So yeah, I think the whole thing around sexual assault is that often there is that element of emotional or psychological manipulation and abuse that goes along with the sexual or physical abuse. And this is what can make it so slippery. And this is why I think, you know, having a good understanding of what consent actually is in a sexual context is so crucial because where the confusion often comes for people, I think, is that, oh, well, I did agree. I wasn't pushing this person off me. I wasn't saying no go away. Therefore, I consented. 
therefore there was no um, assault element to what happened. But when we think about sexual consent, the way that I actually like to conceptualize it is more as desire, right? It's not consent in the sense of your mum signing a permission slip for you to go on a school field trip, right? It's not a box that gets ticked, you know, great consent, done, fantastic, moving on. Consent in a sexual context is, is that person desirous of that experience? Do they want that experience? It's like food, for instance, you know, do you want to eat this meal? Is it something that you're desirous of? Or at a minimum, are you willing to explore that, right? You know, I think uh, particularly in relationships, you know, long-term relationships um, especially, there might be situations where one person wants to have sex and the other person not so much, right? <laughs> um, but consent in that context can be, okay, yeah, I'm willing to see where this goes. I'm willing to explore this feeling with you. Consent is not, oh my God, it's going to be such a nightmare if I say to you that I don't want to have sex right now, so I'm just going to do it because you want to. That is not an open state of mind. So that means that that person is not consenting to that experience. Consent in a sexual context is a state of mind. And this is where, you know, the kind of fluctuating nature of consent, of desire, of willingness um, is very present in a sexual context, but not necessarily in a has my mum signed the permission slip context. You could desire something one day and not the other day. You could desire something in one moment and not the next moment. You know, there's so many variations in what uh, contributes or takes away from our desire that it is a constant state of fluctuation. And this is where being a really competent and emotionally attuned sexual partner is about A, being very attuned to what your own state is, you know, are you desirous in this moment? What are you wanting? What is your body telling you? And then B, your partner's mental state. What are they desiring? What are they wanting? What feedback is their body giving you? So when we kind of take away that black and white tick box of consent framework and we think about it more as a state of mind, as a state of desire, if you look back on a number of your kind of questionable um, sexual experiences in that light, a lot of the time we can actually see, actually, there was a few situations or instances where I was very much not desirous or not even really willing to explore that feeling with someone. I didn't want that, but something happened anyway. So bearing uh, that in mind, you know, we've just had a chat about consent. Uh, I think it's important to just go through some of the, the information and statistics on the rate of sexual assault in neurodivergent women. Um, and to be honest, the rate of sexual assault in the general population uh, is not that great. Um, so in the general population, one in three women have experienced sexual assault, um, which is quite mind-blowing. Um, and one in 10 children in the general population have experienced sexual assault. And when it comes to autistic women, 
The latest study that was published this year in April has said that up to nine out of 10 autistic women have experienced sexual assault. So this study also looked at when the sexual assault happened for people. It said that two-thirds of the autistic women uh, reported that their first sexual assault occurred under the age of 18. And over 75% of the autistic women in the study reported uh, more than one sexual assault. And what the study found that uh, having a sexual assault happen to you when you're young actually increases the risk of more sexual assaults occurring in adulthood. Mm, I've heard that before. Is that from your perspective as a trauma therapist, do you feel like that is kind of the compounding impact of trauma or is there something else kind of driving that? Yeah, sometimes there can be a few different factors uh, driving that such as uh, if you've experienced abuse or sexual assault as a child, usually uh, we know that assault and abuse and violence uh, occurs usually from someone close to you, like a family member or someone known to the family. So what happens for people is the family environment or the environment that they're growing up in, there is a lack of uh, appropriate boundaries in that family environment, often there's a lack of adults in the environment that are, are able to pick up on boundaries and uh, protect the children from those situations. So what happens is people grow up in an environment not knowing what healthy, normal boundaries and behavior actually are. And so if you've grown up uh, experiencing sexual assault, that can then be your normal. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and this occurs whether you're neurodivergent or not, um, like across neurotypes. Um, it's like that, uh, yeah, that modeling um, of the family environment growing up and then you know, experiencing trauma, often people will develop, uh, yeah, like a lot of mental health and physical issues as a result of that trauma. Um, so developing PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, and it can really significantly affect people's attachment style as well. And so who they're drawn to um, as an adult in relationships can mean that people can sort of replay some of those dynamics in adulthood that they experienced in childhood. And obviously, Often, if sexual assault occurs to you as a child or a young person, the rate of or the likelihood of you developing PTSD increases um, because with trauma theory, uh, the younger you are, the less resources that you have to cope with something that's traumatic, uh, the less able you're able to make sense of what's happened um, and to process what's happened. Um, and then the, the further you experience traumatic uh, events like throughout your life, the more traumatized someone becomes and um, the more PTSD symptoms they'll have. Yeah, for sure. And you think, yeah, that's that kind of compounding impact of trauma, right? Where, you know, when we think about this in a sexual assault context, we know, you know, one of the key uh, drivers of why some people and not other people is often predators are very good at picking out 
out who is vulnerable and who is different um, and who they can kind of separate from the herd, so to speak. Uh, and I think, you know, when you've got that really early childhood experience of trauma, that of course sets you up to be more vulnerable, which then makes it more likely that you will be identified as such and targeted and victimized, you know, going forward. Yeah, that that often um, is part of the process of what happens. Yeah. In this study as well, um, it was interesting in that uh, one third of the people in the study, the autistic women, did report the sexual assault that they went through. 25% of those got some form of help or assistance, but 75% of those who reported the sexual assault, uh, reporting it didn't lead to any action or assistance. Mm, that's just so frustrating. You know, I think one of the really difficult things with sexual assault statistics uh, and something that a lot of people who work in this space grapple with is underreporting and how massive that is um, and how difficult it is to kind of nail down really clear stats on what's going on. And it's so frustrating that it's, you know, people who actually are reporting that then doesn't lead to any follow-up support, any additional care, um, any intervention around that. Yeah, and I think too, like the, the whole process of reporting um, and, and many things around sexual assault need to be changed because going through the process of reporting can sometimes be re-traumatizing and re-trigger a person's PTSD symptoms, um, particularly with the way um, that they're treated when they're reporting these things by the justice system. Yeah, like often I'll work with clients and it can be quite a distressing experience to go through and then go through a court case as well. And yeah, maybe not get the outcome that they were hoping for. So I, I think it's hard too because um, people who, you know, feel that they're not able to report for differing, you know, reasons, often they feel such a sense of guilt around, you know, not being able to report what's happened to them um, because, yeah, it could really destabilize their mental health to go through that process. Um, and then, again, people can feel responsible for that person assaulting others um and there's such such a problem problematic attitude with that i think in society around victim blaming um because again it's not really your fault if the person who assaulted you goes and assaults other people that's on them oh for sure and it's kind of that double-edged sword right where on the one hand often if you report you're not believed and you have to have all this evidence to say you know these are all the reasons why there was nothing that i can do and you know essentially what the system as it stands is trying to do is trying to make you get as close to that man jumping out of the bushes narrative as possible. But then if you don't report, it's, oh, well, why didn't you report? You know, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, and I think this is where uh, research studies are really important that allow people to anonymously tell their experiences, rate their experiences, um, and be counted in the research without having to go through that kind of explicit named experience, traumatic experience of reporting. 
Yeah, another interesting factor in this uh, study that was published in April this year was uh, in this particular study, over 50% of the autistic women in the study actually had an IQ score over 120 and over 30% had an IQ score of over 130. So I think it's interesting because it's showing that no matter how sort of quote-unquote intelligent on an IQ test you are there's still that vulnerability around sexual assault because I think when we're talking about disability and vulnerability as well I I think there can be that belief of okay well if I'm really you know smart and then I can sort of predict things and keep myself safe whereas if we look at sexual assault as actually a systemic problem in society around society's attitudes towards women. And it really has nothing to do with the individual characteristics of the woman who is at risk of being sexually assaulted. Mm. Yeah, and I think that can also be a really big barrier to reporting actually as well in the sense that, you know, a lot of women um, who maybe have experienced a sexual assault, but it's one of those muddy sexual assaults where it's not uh, someone forcibly had sex with you, a lot of it can be, well, I'm not the type of person that this happens to. This is not how I see myself. I'm smart. I'm competent. I'm assertive in lots of aspects of my life. I am not someone who is sexually victimized. And that kind of destabilization of what it says about you or what you feel like it says about you can be a really big barrier to acknowledging it, unpacking it, reporting it, um, even just processing it on your own because it feels so discordant with, you know, how you see your personal narrative. And I think destigmatizing sexual assault for the victim or for the person that experienced the sexual assault is really important because still to this day, there's a stigma for the actual person who experienced the assault, which is so wild, but it's true. So, you know, this is something that can happen to literally anybody. And it doesn't say anything about your value as a person. It doesn't say anything about your intelligence. It doesn't say anything about your power or your assertiveness. It's a really shitty thing that's happened that has everything to do with the person who did that thing. Hello, listeners. We have a request. We want to hear your questions. In our last episode for the season, Michelle and I will be answering listener questions. So if there's anything that you're burning to ask or that you feel you want more information on, email us at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Get your questions in by November 7th and tune in to our last episode of the season to hear them answered. Some of the research that has looked into, you know, are there any specific risk factors for autistic or ADHD or neurodivergent women, um, some of the studies found that there were no specific risk factors um, such as, oh, okay, well, if you're autistic, then, you know, you may not be that great at social communication, um, et cetera, and not be able to like pick up on cues. Some of this research actually found that, no, it's actually just having a general 
neurodevelopmental different neurotype and potentially being registered as being, you know, different and thus potentially vulnerable to predators. That was the main risk factor. Yeah. And I think that's a really um, well kind of validated and well supported factor in the research, even outside of neurodivergence, that a lot of people, particularly when we're talking about childhood sexual assault, um, a lot of people who commit sexual assault, the biggest thing that makes them more likely to pick a certain person is just ease. How easy is this? Right. And this is why it's much more likely to, you know, for children to be assaulted or victimized by, you know, well known people. So family members, people close to the family, et cetera, because that's very easy. Um, and then when we think about people who are different in some way, that also makes it easier because as we said before, it's kind of that little bit easier to separate from the herd a bit. And when we're thinking about how this feeds into uh, neurodivergence like autism and ADHD, one of the biggest impacts of feeling different or having that sense of being different is having the internal feeling that you're always wrong. So feeling like, well, I actually can't trust how I've interpreted this situation or what my body is telling me or how I'm feeling in this moment, because I'm always getting the social feedback that that's wrong somehow. And that makes it a lot easier for people, particularly again, people in positions of power to capitalize on that and say either implicitly or explicitly that, yes, you are wrong. This is totally fine. This is a normal situation to be in. So that can kind of make it a little bit easier. And whether that's coming from the autistic lens of feeling socially othered, you know, throughout your life or an ADHD lens, which is, oh, I'm always too much. I'm, you know, always uh, putting my foot in it or doing this or doing that, thinking about that more kind of hyperactive, impulsive type ADHD. Again, that makes it quite easy for someone to come in and say, you know, oh, yeah, you are the worst, but I put up with you. And that's, you know, kind of saying that in jest, but it's actually a tactic that lots of emotionally abusive, manipulative people use that, you know, yeah, everything that you hate about yourself is accurate and true. And I want to be with you in spite of that. How lucky are you? And it really kind of creates this sense of emotional dependence on this other person. So, you know, that can kind of make that separation a little bit easier. The other thing on that though, and it's really interesting research, and I do agree with it at kind of a big picture level, I have found though, just in, you know, my own kind of personal practice, that a lot of autistic women, um, the difficulty kind of picking up on danger cues and some of those cues around like, what's the intention of this person can actually lead, and this is just kind of anecdotally, but can actually lead to, you know, staying in a situation a little bit longer or um, not noticing or not kind of interpreting what someone's underlying intention was. I don't know if you've kind of come across that, Monique. Yeah, I've definitely heard that with clients that I've worked with. Like, of course, the person responsible for the assault is the person doing the assaulting, yes, of course. you know, of course. But yeah, I think 
often people have reported to me that it's sort of like feeling unsure about what the social norms are and having difficulty with reading those red flags, um, knowing like what is normal, healthy behavior, like what to expect going on a date. And, And, you know, again, like unfortunately as women, we shouldn't have to use safety behaviors and think of ways to protect ourselves and keep us safe while going out on a date or going for a run in the local park at nighttime. You know, we should be able to go and do those things without feeling unsafe or having to protect ourselves. But yeah, sometimes women have reported like not reading those cues or not feeling safe enough to leave the situation as well or going into I think that fight or flight reaction or freeze and shut down um, and and looking at that from a trauma perspective if you have experienced uh, trauma or sexual assault previously in your life then if you are placed in a threatening or dangerous situation or are assaulted you know even as an adult, often your nervous system will go automatically into that state of fight, flight, or freeze. Um, And for a lot of autistic women, it will go more into that freeze state of overwhelm and dissociation, which makes it really hard to escape or leave or fight. And I think just knowing that, again, these are like basic physiological responses that we may not have conscious control over it can help with some of the, I guess, self-blame that a lot of people will have of going, well, why didn't I fight? Why didn't I leave? Why did I freeze? And just explaining, well, that is a normal trauma reaction that is, again, comes from that freeze response that uh, our body is actually trying to help us get through that situation by shutting down and actually shutting down like the pain associated with that situation and helping the person to dissociate so that they're not fully experiencing what is an awful situation. Yeah. And I think something that can confuse people a little bit sometimes with that fight, flight and freeze response is even people who, and, you know, particularly women or people who are less physically, um, strong or more physically vulnerable, I guess, you know, women, children, um, et cetera. Even if you're not having a full-on kind of freeze, shutdown trauma response, um, we can still go into flight mode, which often, you know, we think about as avoidance, running away, escaping. But really flight mode is avoidance of the problem. And a lot of the time women are socialized to avoid conflict, right? By actually taking care of the emotional needs of people around you. So actually a form of a flight response in kind of a sexually coercive or emotionally coercive situation is to avoid the conflict. And often that's by acquiescing. Often that's by just doing what's asked of you, you know, being agreeable, saying, okay, yep, we'll do what you want to do. You know, I'm not going to make you mad. I'm not going to make you angry. Or even just at a lower level, I'm not going to make you sad or upset. This is a really common emotional manipulation tactic that lots of people use, which again, on the surface, doesn't seem like, you know, you're sexually coercing or assaulting someone. But if you're basically saying some version of, oh, if you don't have sex with me, I'll be very sad, that is emotional manipulation. And lots of women want to avoid that 
And by saying, okay, I'll have sex with you, that's not desire, that's not willingness, that's trying to avoid a problem. That's trying to take care of someone else's emotions. And that is coercive. So, you know, even if you don't identify yourself as going into, say, a fight, flight or freeze response, if you find yourself constantly trying to caretake the emotions of others in sexual situations um, and going along with, uh, you know, sexual situations just so you avoid hurting other people's feelings, then that's a form of a flight response. So we've chatted about the increased risk um, being an autistic woman of being sexually assaulted, but female ADHDers uh, in the research are also more likely to be sexually assaulted than neurotypical women. So different studies show, you know, differing rates. Um, however, there is a general sort of consensus that women who are ADHDers are up to two times increased risk of sexual assault. Mm, That's really interesting. And, you know, I think as we've chatted about, probably a big element of that is the, that kind of feeling different, right? You know, being neurodivergent, being different places, you're at a high risk uh, for all the reasons that we've talked about. I wonder though, if there's anything, you know, any kind of elements involved in that sort of tendency to be stimulation seeking, a little bit less risk averse, uh, particularly in the hyperactive impulsive type ADHD that has been identified in, in the literature. Yeah. Some studies, again, sort of show that it's not really the particular traits of uh, autism or ADHD that place you at increased risk. It's it's just more that general concept of, of being different. But then there are other studies that uh, look into the hyperactivity, impulsivity side of ADHD in terms of stimulation seeking and maybe when in that impulsive sort of stimulation seeking frame of mind, maybe that making it difficult to read the cues and the red flags in the situation. The other factor too in increasing vulnerability is your sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, So we know that people who are not heterosexual or who are gender diverse um, are also more vulnerable to assault in general. Um, but that includes sexual assault. And a recent study from 2019 to 2021 showed that being autistic and being queer increased your risk of negative sexual experiences or assault by three times mm-hmm. compared to heterosexual autistic uh, people. And it's quite interesting because actually being a heterosexual autistic woman, you would actually fall in the minority in the autistic population because uh, research actually shows that the majority of autistic people don't identify as heterosexual. So in terms of uh, being male as well, uh, men in general are less likely to be sexually assaulted than women and other vulnerable populations. And this also holds true in the research around the autistic population. So being an autistic woman, you're seven times more likely to undergo negative sexual experiences or sexual assault than being an autistic male. 
And I believe as well that the research shows that perpetrators of sexual assault are far and away more likely to be men than women. So I think, and don't quote me on this, but I think it's something like 96% of uh, perpetrators of sexual assault are men. Um, And that holds true as well for men who are victims of sexual assault. So men are less likely to be sexually assaulted. And when they are, they're more likely to be sexually assaulted by other men. So some of the key signs of identifying um, an unsafe or a predatory relationship or just an unsafe situation are things like power differentials, being kind of separated from your support network, emotional or coercive manipulation. Um, And Monique and I are going to go through some of those things today. And just starting off with this idea of a power differential, this is actually one of the key things that we see in any kind of sexually coercive or emotionally manipulative um, situation where one person holds the power and the outcome of the other person's no. Right. What I mean by that is if you say no to this person, what is the cost of that? And do they actually hold the power of deciding what happens with that no? So, you know, a really obvious example of that is like a work situation, right? If someone is your boss or, you know, higher management, etc., does saying no mean that you might lose your job or lose work opportunities or not be advanced to the next opportunity? Your kind of consent or agreement sexually in that situation has nothing to do with desiring that sexually and everything to do with trying to avoid a negative outcome. So that's one example. Other examples are things like religious power differentials. So if someone holds, or even just like social status stuff, if someone holds a really high uh, regard or is in really high esteem or has high status in your particular community or group or family, um, that's a major power differential. Um, Another one that's similar to the work setting but a little bit different is educational settings so if someone is a teacher or a university professor or you know somehow again hold your education in their hands Um, and with the whole power differential thing there's two sort of elements to it essentially the first element is the practical element in the sense of what practically might happen if you say no, you know, to this person. And the second element to it is the emotional element, which is what would it mean for you to say no to this person? Like if this is someone who is really well revered in your social group or your community, um, rejecting that person is that too high of an emotional cost for you? Like, would that mean that you are emotionally ostracized or socially ostracized? Or do you feel like you have enough power to be able to turn that person down? I hope that kind of makes sense and is coming across. It's sort of like practical implications of the power dynamic, but then the emotional implications of that power dynamic as well. I think it's definitely important to consider and review both. So I guess the other point there is, you know, while it's really important to know about red flags and what things to look out for, being aware of these things as the potential, you know, vulnerable people is not the only thing that's going to stop sexual assault or reduce, you know, the amount of sexual assault. 
Yeah, I think um, that's really placing a lot of the responsibility mm. on the vulnerable people, whereas there really needs to be societal-led um, change and shift and education. And, you know, men, I think, need to be educated as well. What the World Health Organization actually recommends um, in terms of trying to look at strategies from a worldwide level to prevent and reduce sexual assault are actually promoting social norms that protect against violence in general, empowering and supporting girls and women from a societal-led level in general, uh, creating protective environments. So that's things like creating a call-out culture, so calling out those really insidious levels of uh, sexual assault behaviour that, again, I think from a society-wide basis, people may not necessarily realise are sexual assault. Oh, my God, yeah, this is something that I feel so strongly about. Um, I saw a really great infographic a while ago that was basically a pyramid and it was talking about all the things at a society level that lead to sexual assault, you know, sexual assault being kind of the top of the pyramid, the actual act of, you know, assaulting someone. And the base of the pyramid or, you know, right down the bottom is things that people think are benign, but actually contribute to this culture of objectification of women. So even things like random comments that people make, it is so, so important for men in particular to call other men out on that because unfortunately men in those situations and the men who are likely to make those comments are going to pay much more attention and be much more receptive to another man giving them feedback on that. You know, if you're a man and you're listening to this, thinking about Next time you are in a social group or a social circle and someone else makes an inappropriate comment about someone, rather than just awkwardly giggling or just going silent, even saying something like, well, that's not that funny, or that was a weird thing to say, man. You know, it doesn't have to be, you're wrong, you're a sexual abuser, right? It doesn't have to be this major kind of dramatic thing. It's just that in the moment social feedback that's, oh, no, don't approve, unsubscribe, right? And that actually sends this really strong message that, oh, crap, I didn't actually get good feedback from that. I remember I, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I was at a bar with a friend um, and we were talking to the uh, bartender about you know, feminism. Of course, this is my topic of interest from, from birth pretty much. Um, and anyway, my friend and I, who's female, um, were making various points and the bartender was just with a guy, was like just dismissing us and saying, you know, what about this? What about that? This random guy that was sitting next to us chimed in and literally just repeated exactly what my friend and I had said. And the bartender said, oh, that's such a good point. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so very infuriating. But it does mean that as a man, you actually have incredible power to make change. It is the privileged group and the group that has more social currency and more social power, you know, depending on what the issue is and depending on the context, that has the most capacity to make change. So even something as little as 
not accepting other men making shitty comments, that has a really big impact. Yeah, like we need men to be our allies. And being an ally is more than just not doing the thing yourself. It's about actively and with intention doing what you can to create change. Yeah, I, I think, you know, to, to sum it all up, the, the World Health Organization basically says that the root of all sexual violence is gender inequality in society at large. So another group of people that have a position of power and with that power comes a position of change or capacity to make change is parents. So crucially important when you're parenting to help your children understand right from when they're very little about their bodies, bodily autonomy, who owns your body, um, learning to actually understand their body cues, what their body's telling them, learning about relationships and communication. How do you actually go about setting boundaries? So modeling boundary setting, explicitly teaching boundary setting, um, and teaching sex as just a part of the natural progression from childhood to adulthood. In the West, we have this very puritanical uh, concept or idea of what sex is. Um, we conceptualize sex as a risk behavior, right? It's like, and this is quite American, but it's that sense of um, to avoid risks associated with sex or so STIs, uh, pregnancy, etc. just don't have sex. It's risky. You know, we need to teach kids how to not have sex, which never in the history of humanity has worked. <laughs> Becoming sexually interested in people is a very normal and natural part of maturation and development. What we actually want to do is provide kids with tools and the ability to understand and navigate that part of their life through childhood, adolescence, and into adulthood to be able to actually have strong relationship intelligence emotional intelligence and to be able to be partners, whether that be for a night or, you know, a long-term relationship where they're thoughtful, communicative, receptive, and able to actually understand and communicate their own boundaries and their own body's needs. Um, and as I said, that can start right from really early in a kid's life. You know, I'm not saying tell your two-year-old about sex, but I am saying tell your two-year-old about what makes your body feel good, what feels yucky for your body. How can you tell mum and dad what makes your body feel good and what makes your body feel yucky? How do you understand how your body's feeling? Emotional literacy is part of that as well. For your kids in late childhood and tweens, it's about how do you actually navigate the needs of your friends versus your own needs? How can you um, be a good friend while still maintaining your own boundaries? For adolescents, it's how do you understand your burgeoning kind of sexual interest? How do you navigate your first romantic relationship? So giving your kids those tools actually helps them to be much more thoughtful uh, human beings.
If you'd like to hear more about how to navigate sex, sexuality, and relationships, can I recommend my book, How to Be Great at Sex? Uh, This is available through Amazon, and it's a book I wrote a few years ago, really aimed at uh, individuals in their late teens, 20s, even early 30s, um, or even beyond. And it's really about understanding the interconnection between our mind, our body, our psychology, our relationship needs when it comes to sex, sexuality, and sexual relationships. So available at this point on Amazon or through my website, michellelevoque.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can head to our page on Patreon and buy us a coffee or a wine. Patreon subscribers receive access to a bunch of additional resources, as well as a monthly live Zoom hangout to ask us questions, chat about feelings, our favorite thing to talk about, and connect with other neurodivergent women. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle the Neurodivergent Woman podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.